Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Marxist Voice. Uh, You're with me, Adam Booth, uh, the host for tonight, uh, the editor of Socialist Appeal, uh, website socialist.net. And uh, if you're not already following socialist.net on our various uh, channels, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, head over now and give us a like and subscribe. And of course, subscribe to the podcast, Marxist Voice, on Spotify, on iTunes, any major podcast provider so you can get more regular updates uh, with Marxist ideas, analysis, uh, theory, history, all sorts going straight into uh, your podcast provider and platform. Uh, Tonight we're going to be discussing uh, the easing of the lockdown. Uh, Last night obviously we had Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, uh, giving a speech to the nation about the plans for the ending of the lockdown and what things might start to look like in the coming weeks and months. Uh, But I think it's fair to say that most people were probably a little bit confused by Boris's speech and aren't quite sure what actually does lie in store for Britain, uh, for ordinary people. Uh, So tonight we're going to be discussing what exactly was the take-home message of Boris's Boris's announcements last night uh, and what this tells us about the political situation in Britain and beyond. Uh, now joining us for this discussion tonight is Ben Curry, the uh, one of the editors of uh, Socialist Appeal on the editorial board and I'm just going to bring in Ben now. You alright Ben? Yeah, I'm not too bad Adam, you alright? Yeah, well, very well. How are you doing in uh, isolation? Uh, yeah, keeping, <laughs> keeping going I think, uh, best <laughs> as can be expected. Good, good, good to hear. Well, yeah, you've been obviously following uh, the news, as I'm sure we all have on this question. Um, And as I said to the viewers a second ago, like the rest of us, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of confusion uh, for yourself and everyone over exactly what on earth was Boris actually saying, you know, amidst all his waffling and his usual kind of gesticulations. What exactly was the take home message uh, from last night's announcement? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, first of all, like you say, I think most people come up, came away from last night's announcement uh, more confused than when they went into it, to be honest. Uh, I think that the, uh, I mean, you always expect this with Boris Johnson, a certain amount of bluff and bluster. <clears throat> but beyond that, it was a little bit difficult to get what the, uh, what the message was. They'd scrapped their, uh, their main uh, slogan, which was stay home and save lives. This has obviously been the, the headline grabbing thing with the newspapers today. Although it should be said that this is only in England, in the devolved uh, um, uh, governments, they're actually keeping this slogan, rather than adopt the government's uh, far more confused slogan, which is uh, stay alert, control the virus. Um, I think we're all left scratching our heads as to exactly what that means. Um, and I think, though, when you, scrap, when you, when you just strip away the, uh, the, the bluff and the bluster that you come to expect with Boris, I think that the, uh, 
the main the main message is that they're trying to nudge people back to work. I think there was clearly a lot of uh, a lot of thought had gone into this messaging. They'd even changed the the border around it from a red and yellow sort of clear hazard sign to a more green and yellow, uh, a bit ambiguous. Does it mean hazard? Does it mean it's safe to go back to work? Uh, so I think that there's a, there's a certain amount of deliberate uh, ambiguity because they are trying to reopen the economy. They are trying to basically force workers back into work and they're coming under the pressure of big business, of course, they're coming under the pressure of the billionaires. Um, and in particular in construction and manufacturing, they've been clamoring for op to open up the lockdown for a long time. And that's what they're going to do, particularly in these two sectors. Uh, they're going to open up the lockdown from uh, Wednesday, although Boris actually said Monday, and there was a bit of confusion even amongst the government about exactly what day they were opening up the lockdown. And uh, yeah, workers are basically going to be thrown into the meat grinder to, uh, to, to restore the profits of big business. Clearly, a and lot of the backbench Tories themselves are also very worried about the furlough scheme, how much that's going to cost. And, and it said, you know, he said uh, in his announcements, Boris, uh, that, you know, workers should should go back, uh, particularly, as he said, in construction, manufacturing, but they should avoid public transport. So w what the hell are people supposed to do? Walk all the way to work? And, uh, you know, what what kind of what kind of conditions can they expect when they get there as well? I mean, this this comes on the back of some kind of draft guidelines for workplaces uh, that the government released last week, which included blank pages, if I'm not incorrect. So what exactly is 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 happening here? What what work is going to expect? Well, yeah, I mean, like you say, they said uh, there's a lot of conditionals in the, the whole speech from last night, you know, where possible work from home. So I'm sure there's a lot of workers in the manufacturing and construction industry wondering about how they're going to get their production lines and their cement mixers into their front living room. Uh, obviously, maybe some of the managers will be, uh, you know, will be able to work from home and probably they've been working from home from since before the lockdown began. But uh, for the frontline workers, it's obviously not going to be possible. They're going to be thrown into the firing line. Uh, to restore the profits for the bosses and it's a clear there's a clear class division over who suffers the most in this situation it's the poorest who have been suffering the most who have been suffering the highest mortality rates i mean you've already seen that uh, as i say a lot of managers were already working from home since before the lockdown began and uh, the the unskilled uh, workers laborers for example are three to four times more likely to die as a result of covid19 than um, than workers in management or uh, professional uh, uh, workers, so it's uh, than professionals. So already it's quite clear that it's the it's the poorest who are going to pay. Um, and uh, yeah, likewise, these uh, if, if you can, it would be very good if you could take the car or if you could walk or if you could cycle. If you've got several miles to go and you've only and you rely upon public transport, however, like the poorest workers uh, uh, will be, uh, then of course you're told to still go ahead and go to work. And like you mentioned, the uh, as you mentioned the. Um, <clears throat> The government issued a, a set of draft guidelines last week, which they is still a draft guidelines. There are no set in stone guidelines actually for what employers should do now that they are returning to work. And that's because uh, these guidelines met with stiff resistance from the trade unions. Uh, the government needed mm -hmm. the trade unions really to to help get workers back into work, because, of course, workers don't trust the bosses. They've mm -hmm. seen um, that, that workers in essential industries have been suffering from a lack of PPE, a lack of social distancing and all of these sort of things. And they know that these penny, uh, you know, penny pinching bosses are going to do the same for non-essential workers when they return to work. So uh, but the trade unions themselves are coming under a huge amount of pressure. And uh, uh, yeah, like you say, this this guidelines uh, really I mean, in the words of Francis O'Grady, she said it, it basically the government were crossing their fingers and hope that bosses act responsibly, uh, hope that bosses uh, introduce uh, 
social distancing measures, hope that bosses introduce uh, um, uh, PPE and these sort of things. Of course, there's no incentive for the bosses to do that. It'll only cost them more when they're already uh, running up against very tight margins. They've lost a huge amount and they'll be eager to get that profit back at the expense of the workers who are now being mm. thrown into the meat grinder. And talking of meat grinders, um, last week, uh, I think it was, or maybe the week before, Greg's announced that they were going to reopen uh, to, to serve up that essential service of the uh, sausage and bean melt. And uh, that was obviously in response to the fact that other businesses were also kind of just deciding without any government uh, kind of, uh, you know, not no, no green light as we've been seen last night you know you had uh, kfc and other competitors of greg's obviously opening before that so it seems like a lot of this is happening basically uh you know it's a fait accompli that's been presented to the government effectively the bosses are saying we're going to open unilaterally and you've just got to kind of give the seal of approval to something that's already happening and 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 you mentioned also kind of the competition uh between the bosses internationally as well as obviously a big driving force with other countries also coming out of lockdown so you know can you can you explain a little bit more what exactly is driving all of this desperate uh kind of race to to, to open up as quickly as possible yeah i think like you say if, if there was a lot of confusion about exactly what the message was uh, i think certainly the, the newspapers uh, today have summed it up as trying to nudge people back to work, basically. Uh, in other words, it's giving the green light to the bosses, get the you know get your workers back to work. And we've heard a number of statements, I think, from um, uh, which really shows that the, the, the Tory uh, the, the Tory ministers, these Tory MPs, they're like the Bourbons in the 18th century. You know, they, their attitude is that workers are a bit. I think it was Rishi Sunak who said that we're addicted to the furlough money, uh, as if workers are addicted to uh, you know to uh, eating and drinking and having a, a, a roof over their heads. And there was some some other Tory MP who said that some workers are a little bit too comfortable with the whole furlough situation and the lockdown. And they're reflecting uh, the, the pressure of big business who are desperate to open up. There is this pressure within the Tory party. They are, the, the, they are of course, the, uh, the, um, the, the party of big business. Uh, but at the same time, there is another wing in the Tory party, the, uh, um, which sees the that if they do open up prematurely and it cause an inevitable second wave of the virus, this is going to have a massive political backlash for the party. And this is going to cause, uh, this is going to destabilize the government at a certain stage. There is going to be a payback. And so they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And this has caused splits to open up in the government. And this has led to a bit of a, uh, this is the, the whole reason this message is confused is because Boris is clearly trying to rest between these two camps, right? He's coming under mm -hmm. these conflicting pressures politically stabilizing his government, whereas also uh, serving the interests of big business who are his ultimate backers. But like you say, I mean, it's not just the pressure from the, uh, the, the British business, I think. There's the international scenario, as you mentioned. I mean, we've got to look at this as, uh, this is really, there is a mad situation where capitalism on a world scale has obviously gone into this deep crisis. And um, uh, now we have a situation where some countries are starting to come out of the lockdown. Lots of countries went into lockdown at very different times, right? Now, of course, the first ones to go into lockdown were, uh, were China. Um, and when China went into lockdown, it's been in lockdown for three months, and then last month it came out of lockdown. There was very little advantage, really, from the point of view of Chinese capitalism to be the first ones out of lockdown because the rest of their world markets were, were completely closed, basically. Although I read a, an interesting article, I think it was in the Financial Times, uh, basically saying that China is now retooling its factories desperately to try and get an advantage over other 
capitalist nations in terms of uh, medical supplies. That's one area of the market they can outcompete their competitors as they're the first to come out of lockdown. But generally, there's been no advantage. Uh, there is, however, a stark disadvantage to be the last nation to come out of, uh, of lockdown. If all of the other nations start to come out of lockdown, uh, you're going to face a situation where the uh, uh, if you're the last one to come out of lockdown, then other um, gangs of capitalists basically are going to mm -hmm. grab your markets. And that's the pressure that the uh, British capitalism are facing. And that's the real panic that is uh, mm. uh, uh, grasping the, the minds of the of big business in Britain. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that, yes, you've seen the lockdown. Different countries went into lockdown at different times, but they're all coming out in, very, in, a, in a very short period of time. Mm. Um, Austria came out of lockdown on the 1st of May. In Italy, uh, factories, building sites and offices opened on the 4th of May. Uh, and today, it's not just Britain that's coming out of lockdown, but it's also being eased in Belgium, in France. And in a week's time, Ireland is planning to ease restrictions, uh, its lockdown restrictions. So it's no coincidence that these countries are coming out of lockdown when there's no evidence that the virus has actually been controlled. I mean, last week, each day you were seeing about five to 6,000 new cases being diagnosed. And we know, of course, the, 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 the low level of testing that the government is doing. So it's actually far higher than that about 600 five to 600 people dying each day last week um so i think that the um um yeah there's no evidence that the, the thing is under control the, the, they're entirely being driven by the economic necessity of big business to fill up their order books and start making a profit again um and, and, and actually you, said, was, you said that basically this is ultimately you've got these two kind of conflicting pressures on the government which which seem to me like class pressures basically you've got the the pressure of big business who wants to make profits and then obviously you've got the pressure of ordinary people of the working class, you know, which obviously does not want to put their lives on the line for those profits. And and these are the pressures that are being reflected in, you know, on, on Boris trying to do this balancing act. And you mentioned that this actually led to, to splits in the uh, in the government itself. How how was that reflected around this announcement? Uh, you know, was 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 everyone on board with uh, with Boris's announcement or? Or, or were there, you know, the usual Tory backstabbings going on behind the scenes? Well, I think we know that, that you know, this, uh, the Tory party is uh, a real den of thieves and uh, there's always backstabbing and uh, the, looking for the chance to get one over on, uh, on each other. Um, but of course, like you say, there are already deep splits in the Tory party and there have been for a while. I think particularly over this question of when are they going to ease the lockdown? Um, and yeah, ultimately, of, of course, they, they, it does reflect different class pressures. Big business wants to begin easing the lockdown. But of course, it's not, it's not the CEOs and it's not the capitalists who are going to be risking their lives uh, going back to work. It's ordinary working class people. Of course, the Tories, both no wing of the Tory party gives a rats about uh, ordinary working class people. I think that's quite clear. But they do want to stay in power. And to do that, of course, they, they, they um, I mean, well, they know that there is a reckoning coming, basically. And they can't say to people, it is safe to go out to work. So they have to use this sort of uh, non-slogan of stay alert, whatever that means, as if the, the, you know, the virus is just going to sneak up on you. Like, um, it's uh, uh, obviously, you know, there's a, that, that's um, a lot of nonsense. But I think that the, um, um, yeah, and, and it's trying to put, it's basically trying to put the onus on individuals, that it is the individual's responsibility to keep the virus down. And therefore, if we don't keep the virus down, it's because people are being irresponsible, going for picnics, this sort of thing. But yeah, I think, um, like you say, there are, there are competing pressures on the Tory party. And in fact, the Tory party was already split before coronavirus emerged. Uh, the question of Brexit exposed this. Um, the ruling class has been split 
um, going back a number of years now, which reflects the deep crisis of British capitalism. Um, but yeah, um, it's 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 now reaching uh, crisis proportions, um, and this was reflected actually in the way this whole easing of the lockdown thing has been uh, ha has gone through. Um, actually, uh, they had their meeting to decide the the course of action uh, and uh, to decide uh, Sunday night's national address by Boris Johnson. They had a, a a meeting of the cabinet earlier on Sunday, but it turned out that Boris Johnson had basically already recorded. The, uh, the national address on Saturday. So he was basically presenting his own cabinet with a fait accompli, uh, because of course, this was the only way to sort of smooth over the kind of divisions that are taking place rather than have a fractious debate, tell them what's going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, um, yeah, that you, you, before the, uh, the meeting, there was, uh, there was an interesting article in The Guardian saying that none of these ministers turned up prepared. They didn't know what Boris's plan was. And the reason was because he didn't issue them with documents because he doesn't trust any of these people because there's constant briefings and counter briefings to the press. So this is the kind of like atmosphere that exists within the Tory government at the moment, complete distrust. Uh, and, and apparently at the start of the meeting, how people know about what went on in this meeting, I don't know, clearly <laughs> all these briefings and, uh, you know, it, it's as leaky as a sieve. Um, but apparently at the start of the meeting, uh, Boris Johnson had to make a personal apology to Matt Hancock for the constant uh, backstabbing and the, and the, and the, the, the negative reports in the, uh, the right-wing media on uh, Sunday's press. Uh, because clearly Matt Hancock is being briefed against because he's been prepared as a scapegoat for the the backlash which is going to face this government so it's um yeah it's a, it's a crisis-ridden government it's a government which really if there was an opposition which was worth its salt could be fighting to bring down this government actually mm. it's uh, mm. it's completely exposed in the eyes of millions of people everyone knows that this this stay alert strategy is the old herd immunity strategy Definitely. uh repackaged for the post uh, you know the post lockdown period well and, and you mentioned the, the the question of the opposition there and and i think a lot of viewers uh, particularly Labour members will be asking themselves what opposition uh, because it does seem to me like you talk about this crisis in the government this splits in the Tory party but at the same time you've got Keir Starmer calling for national unity which seems like a bit of a joke you know when the government itself is split to be calling for national unity uh, you know how can what kind of unity are you, is, is Starmer imagining there? So how have uh, Starmer and Labour responded, or if at all, on on this question? I mean, I mean to be honest, the, the, the Keir Starmer in some ways reminds me of the bad old days of Tony Blair, where you'd hear this, you know, these same old repeated slogans over and over again, and you'd notice every single speech he gives, it's got the same words, you know, forensic opposition to the Tory Party, national consensus keeps banging on about this thing, national consensus. Well, the um, the socialist campaign group of, of, of MPs had a good uh, a good description, basically, of what uh, Boris's Johnson's Boris Johnson's national address last night represented. They they described it as a thinly veiled declaration of class war. Now, that's the reality of the situation. And here we have this man, the leader of the opposition, basically groveling on uh, on all fours before the government. Um, he's he, he's making the meekest and mildest criticisms and where his criticisms are landing it's actually backing up this big business call to end the lockdown you know for the past few months he hasn't been talking about the lack of ppe the lack of social distancing uh, the lack of testing that's not been going on i mean just in the past day we've seen uh, um I, I think they hit their target of a hundred thousand uh, tests at the end of april 
on the basis of basically uh, mailing an extra 40,000 of these swabs that they had no, no capacity to actually send them back to the labs. And then yesterday, news has come out that because they don't have this capacity to actually do this 100,000 test, they had to uh, send a chartered flight over to the United States to get them tested in American labs, basically. So it's all, it's all bluff and bluster, and it's an easy target if there is an opposition willing to actually uh, you know, be, be, be an actual opposition. And yeah, we have, we have this guy like um, Keir Starmer. Last week, when the government comes out with a bunch of uh, guidelines for, uh, um, you know, a big business, what they're supposed to do to protect their workers. And um, he, he describes it as thin and vague. Okay, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it, it certainly was thin and vague. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. But then he was quick to reassure the Tories. Uh, uh, I'm not setting up a rival camp here were his exact words. Um, he, he, this constant presenting himself as, you know, this, this, uh, the need for national unity in this period of crisis. He's, he's really uh, acting to, I, I think he's consciously trying to demoralize the rank and file, actually, of the Labour Party. Um, and I think he's, uh, he's, he's obviously trying to present himself as a respectable uh, representative of big business, a potential second 11 for big business. Were Boris Johnson to be removed and uh, the question of a national unity government to, be, uh, to present itself? So he's, yeah, all of this stuff about uh, national consensus is not, there can be no question of it. One of two things will now happen with this lockdown. Either uh, workers will be forced back to work and thousands of people will die as a result, or the workers' movement will bring production to a standstill and will enforce its will upon the bosses. One side has to win over the other. It is a class war, as the socialist campaign group says. And we need, of course, a workers' leadership, uh, which is prepared to actually uh, fight fire with fire, which is actually prepared to take the measures which are necessary to uh, to, to to stop the spread of this virus in the face of government, which only cares about profits. And, and it seems that Starmer, as you say, is actively basically offering his services to the establishment, presumably because he is part of the establishment. Sir Keir Starmer, this former uh, barrister, and uh, and I see also recently, you know, Labour members rightly are, are infuriated, incredibly angry at the fact that Labour's now changed its position also to say that it's it's no longer in favour of cancellation of rents, but that, you know, basically people will just have a little bit longer to pay back arrears of rents that they can't pay uh, because of loss of jobs, loss of income. So you can see across the board uh, Starmer making concession after concession to the landlords, to big business, to the imperialists as well in relation to uh, Kashmir. So uh, and, and obviously he's, he's in return getting this uh, this praise, endless gushing praise from the Financial Times, from the, the Sunday Times, you know, calling him the you know, the forensic kind of examiner, the uh, the credible opposition. And uh, yeah, it's real nauseating stuff all around. But I guess the question then comes, what what are the unions doing about this? Because obviously the unions are affiliated to the Labour Party. And more importantly, what are they doing? On the shop floor, what are they doing to organise workers in the face of this uh, kind of bullish behaviour by the uh, by the bosses uh, and by the Tory government? Uh, are they are they, are they organising at all to to resist this uh, kind of green light that's being given to to the bosses to to put workers' lives on the line? Um, you mentioned some kind of letter to the to the Observer and uh, a few other kind of vague things here and there. But can you explain a little bit more? What is the attitude of, of Francis O'Grady, the TUC, Unite, Len McCluskey, these kind of figures been in recent weeks? Yeah, I mean, um, well, clearly, I think, first of all, the trade union leaders come under the more direct pressure of the uh, um, 
of the rank and file of the of the labor movement uh, um, of working class people and they're anticipating a massive backlash they're anticipating a fight over this question of forcing workers back into unsafe working conditions and so they have been forced into a position of uh, more of a position of opposition really um as you as you say there is this there was a letter in the guardian by uh, francis o'grady um uh, last week talking about the government's guidelines uh, where she referred to it as the, the government basically crossing their fingers and hoping that the employers will um, will basically uh, look after the interests of the workers, um, which was correct. But uh, in in that, and it should be said, in the, most recently the unions have issued a joint um, letter in the Observer, as you mentioned, with uh, Francis O'Grady from the TUC and the General Secretaries of Unite, Usdor, GMB, and um, Unison. So the biggest four trade unions in Britain. Um, and they, they, they issued this letter, and it must be said that in this letter, it said nothing, to be honest, about uh, whether they were in favour of the lockdown or not. Implicitly, the trade unions are in favour of ending the lockdown, as Boris Johnson is. Uh, but what they did, they were forced, nevertheless, into a certain opposition, uh, saying that uh, work shouldn't proceed if it can't be done safely, which is, which is of course, um, correct. And it reflects the pressure that is coming from below. Um, the natural tendency of these trade union leaders is towards is towards uh, national unity and compromise, just like Keir Starmer and the right wing tra uh, uh, Labour Party leaders. And in fact, it should be said that whilst this, whilst the uh, the trade union uh, leaders are being forced into greater opposition to the government than uh, than than Keir Starmer, that many of these trade union leaders actually backed Keir Starmer when it came to the Labour leadership contest earlier on in the year. I think uh, Unison and Usdor in particular backed Keir Starmer and GMB mm. backed another right winger. Only Unite actually backed a left winger who would carry on Corbyn's programme. So we are partly in this situation because of the right wing trade union leaders and their tendency towards national unity and compromise uh, mm. uh, 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 anyway. Um, so and, they have and been, also they... not to mention the fact that also a lot of the uh, heads of these unions were involved in some way or another in the in the scandalous allegations in the Labour leaked report surrounding you know active sabotage of Labour's electoral chances in 2017 so yeah it seems like a real rot at the top of the uh, Labour movement there no absolutely I mean it's no it'll come as no surprise to left-wing Labour activists that the the trade union leadership have blocked the shift to the left in the Corbyn years um, and uh, at a party conference and of course yes you like you say the GMB uh, union which represents the bureaucrats in the Labour Labour Party head office came out with an uh, um, an outrageous uh, um, um, defence of these these bureaucrats who'd been implicated in the Labour leaks. So of course the trade unions do not have uh, their hands clean, which makes it all the more all the more remarkable. I think that unions like the GMB um, are coming under huge pressure and are forced to threaten industrial action to stop workers being sent back into work. You have. Uh, they've even citing uh, legal a legal basis for calling wildcat strike action. Basically, uh, they, the GMB and I think the TSSA and a number of other unions have cited the fact that the 1996 Employment Rights Act, um, Section 44, I think it is, uh, gives workers the right to walk off site if there is an imminent threat to their health and safety, which clearly the coronavirus um, um, presents that threat. Uh, so the fact that they have been forced to threaten this shows that they're coming under enormous pressure themselves from the rank and file or that they anticipate an enormous pressure from the rank and file. Um, and so this pressure has to be kept up on the trade union leaders to actually put this uh, th this threat to bring production to a halt into action rather than simply into words. And to go beyond that and say that actually the threat to our lives is going to continue as long as this Tory government continues. Therefore, we need to bring it down. 
that presents a bit of a quandary when you've got such a, a timid uh, and mild opposition in the form of the Labour Party. But the trade union delegates uh, on the on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, along with the left, would constitute a majority. They could they could turn the course of the Labour Party if they wanted to. So we, we have to call upon, yeah, trade unionists should be putting the pressure on their leaders in this period. The kind of things that they're actually um, demanding uh, the government do are things like uh, uh, enforce, uh, create some enforceable guidelines for employers, carry out s sanctions against employers, uh, carry out more, the, the health and safety executives should carry out more inspections against employers, and that the employers themselves should have to publish uh, risk assessments, which I think, I think that's all very well and good, but the, the point is you're calling upon uh, a government for the rich to enforce this uh, this lockdown in the interests of, of uh, sorry, the, the easing of the lockdown uh, in the interests of the workers to carry it out in such a way. Clearly, the bosses are not going to do that. And in fact, Francis O'Grady in that last week's Guardian article talked about the fact that over the past, uh, uh, the past number of years, there has been a 70% fall in the number of HSE uh, inspections and an 80% fall in the number of pros successful prosecutions against employers. So you can't count upon the government to do this for workers. They have to rest upon their own strength. Um, and fundamentally, it's, it's workers themselves who know what PPE they need, what social distancing they need. Uh, not, uh, it's not going to be the, the, the employers carrying out these public risk, uh, uh, these, these health and safety risk assessments. It should be the workers themselves carrying out the risk mm. assessments and fighting, and the unions fighting to, to uh, for workers' power, basically, in the factories, in the workplaces, on the construction sites, so the workers can enforce the necessary measures which are needed to protect workers' lives and to protect the public's lives. So what kind of demands then are leading on from that? Do you think the whole of the labour movement should be fighting for in terms of in the workplace, but also more broadly in, uh, in order to uh, make sure that it is, uh, you know, workers who, whose lives are put first and, uh, you know, to make sure that the bosses pay? Well, I think that the, um, the, the, the first thing is, as I, as I mentioned, directly flown on from what I was saying, that this question, I think the, the, the trade unions um, and the trade union leadership need to be bringing, raising the question, essentially, not simply of greater laws and regulation and resting upon the state and the courts to enforce the interests of workers. They will never enforce the interests of workers. I mean, part of the problem uh, of the whole Brexit debate was the fact that the, the labor movement in many respects, the leadership of the labor movement at least, um, took a pro-EU position because they were dependent upon EU courts basically defending the interests of workers against British bosses. We can't defend, we, we can't rest upon that. We can't rest upon British courts defending uh, uh, workers against the bosses. It can only be on the basis of workers' control. Workers themselves know what is possible and what is feasible in terms of reorganizing workplaces in the uh, to, to defend workers' uh, um, health and safety. Workers themselves know who can and cannot afford to basically uh, um, be involved in um, uh, production uh, safely, who should be allowed to go home because of health risks to themselves or their families. Um, so I think that we should be fighting for complete workers' control of workplaces, including staffing in particular. Um, but I think it goes, uh, we have to go beyond that. I think we have to look at the, the fact that this crisis, although it is, uh, no one could, predict the outbreak of coronavirus. Uh, this, this, this particular virus, of course, is a natural phenomenon in some ways. But of course, it is aggravated by the, uh, by the capitalist system. And we see this on a whole number of, in, a, in a whole number of ways. The profiteering of the capitalists is forcing this lockdown to happen uh, prematurely. 
Uh, it is also workers themselves who are going to be uh, forced to, to pay. Part of the reason that the uh, lockdown is being eased, of course, is because of the huge amounts of furlough money uh, that are having to be spent on keeping uh, uh, workers on the uh, on the um, uh, on the payroll of companies. Now, of course, with this, uh, with some of these workplaces starting to reopen, a lot of workers will lose their jobs. So it is workers who are going to pay the economic consequences also. Um, and there is going to be a long term. There is going to be a long term overhang as a result of this crisis. Uh, I'll give you an example. Warren Buffett, who's uh, uh, one of the richest Amer men in America, or at least he was. Uh, I don't know if he is now because he had a lot of stakes in the airline industry, which has lost a lot of value over the over the past period. And he says the problem is, even if we open up the economy, there are uh, th and uh, we we start flying to destinations again. Uh, there will still be uh, there will still be 20 to 30 percent too many planes basically in other words there'll be an there'll be an excess of planes there'll be an excess of everything that we need and this will drive down profits because uh, uh, because of this crisis of overproduction which the system is suffering from essentially so the lack of national coordination the competition between national gangs of capitalists and this massive overproduction is going to cause ordinary working class people to, 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 to be forced to foot the bill at the end of the day on the basis of capitalism, and it is aggravating this crisis. On the basis of socialism, there would not have been a coronavirus crisis. It would have been simple uh, to basically shut down economies and reorganize who is deployed where from the point of view of what is socially necessary. There would have been no question of unemployment, no question of, uh, of, of workers um, in e even key workers who are at risk having to put themselves at risk. There would have been a rational plan to the response of coronavirus and it would have been carried out on an international basis. Part of the reason I think that Europe is particularly affected is because you have different, po different countries pulling in different directions uh, with regard to their policies. Uh, some of them like Sweden thinking that if they don't apply a lockdown whatsoever, they will, they will uh, evade the economic consequences and get one over on their competitors. So I think on the basis of cap it is capitalism which is aggravated and turns this crisis into a, a catastrophe for humanity. So I think we have to say that beyond this, there needs to be a socialist response. We need to fight for a socialist plan of production in Britain and on a world scale. Um, and that means, of course, um, getting active, jo you know, joining an organization which is fighting for that. Um, that's at the, at the end of the day, that's what our organization is, you know, the international Marxist tendency and uh, a socialist appeal in Britain. And um, yeah, we should we should uh, we should join together and fight to turn the labor movement into fighting organizations and clear out the bureaucracy, which is holding back the fight for these sort of demands. Thank you, Ben. I think that's an excellent place to end it for tonight. And uh, thanks to everyone uh, at home for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ben. Hopefully see you soon uh, again on the show uh, and if not in uh, in real life uh, when the lockdown is lifted further. All right. Stay safe and healthy. See you soon. Uh, thanks to everyone again uh, for tuning in at home. If you're not already following us, as I said, on Facebook, YouTube and so forth, then like us, subscribe us, uh, get the podcast uh, downloaded regularly by subscribing to Marxist Voice. And as Ben said at the end there, most importantly, get involved in the fight for socialism in, and join uh, the Marxists in the labour movement, socialist appeal to help uh, clear out the bureaucracy, clear out the Blairites, get a socialist labour party that's going to be a real opposition to drive out this Tory government. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, 
iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.